You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We'll be reading from Hebrews 11, 1 through 12. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we do have Redemption Hill kids, uh, ages two to four and grades four to five. Well, welcome. Some of you may have astutely observed that we have skipped chapter 10 entirely, Uh, but never fear, we will come back to that at another Sunday. I was scheduled to preach today, and back before we even decided to preach through the book of Hebrews, I, uh, I asked Sean if I could preach on the first half of chapter 11. So here we are. I asked for this passage because my journey of faith, uh, of understanding the true nature of faith, played a significant role in my ability to endure through hardship and pain and struggle. My journey of understanding of faith continued even more in the process of preparing this sermon. 
And I'm eager to share with you what I believe the Spirit has revealed. And I will preemptively ask your forgiveness if in my eagerness I overshare and wear you down. So let's pray that God will grant you endurance and use my potential verbosity to instead provide his church with encouragement. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you, the founder and finisher of our faith, and not to man for our security. Provide for us from your word and through your spirit a full assurance of faith that we may seek to please you and look forward to the reward that you have promised us. In your name, amen. All right, why are we here? Hebrews 11 is called the faith chapter. Rob just said that. And it's often disconnected from the rest of the book as it's kind of its own thing. At first glance, there appears to be this abrupt shift. We have this talk of pictures, shadows, covenants, how Jesus is better than Levitical priests. And then we get this description of faith and some examples of people throughout Scripture that had faith. Why? Hebrews constantly reiterates how Jesus is greater. But what's the takeaway? Is he just trying to teach good theology? Going into writing the sermon, I honestly didn't know. But let's take a walk. Let's take a walk back through Hebrews and see if we can spot a pattern. Back in Hebrews 3, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Chapter 4, let us hold fast to our confession. Chapter 6, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And then Hebrews 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You think you start to see the point here? The, the call to action of the entirety of the book of Hebrews is to endure. Hold fast. Don't lose your hope. Have confidence. Have full assurance of faith. But then again, why all this talk about how Jesus is greater? The person and the character of Jesus Christ are what make our confidence and endurance possible. It's because Jesus holds the priesthood permanently that we can be sure that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. It's because Jesus opened a new and living way for us that we have confidence to enter the holy places. It's because Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant that we can look forward to the reward. Our faith is secure because of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. 
Look at the end of chapter 10. I want to look at verse 35, starting there. Therefore, we do not throw away, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what the author is coming to is how faith, endurance, righteousness, pleasing God, salvation, and looking forward to our promised reward are all inextricably connected. You can't have one without having all the others. So, what is faith? What is faith in this passage? Hebrews 11 does not give us a complete definition of faith as much as I wished that it did when I started writing this. Much of what we could discuss about faith is not addressed here. And like whether Thomas had faith when he said he would need to see Jesus' wounds in order to believe. Uh, Will we still have need of faith when Jesus returns? Uh, Did Jesus have faith? And although I would love to get into those more philosophical questions, to do so would miss the forest for the trees. But the discussion of faith in Hebrews has significantly more implications than I originally anticipated, as happens when you study the word. To start, we need to understand that there's a connection between the words, the book of Hebrews, and the rest of the New Testament use for faith, believe, and faithful. The word for faith is pistis in Greek. It could be literally translated as belief, and in fact, that's how you will often see it translated in the New Testament. Believe is pisteuo. It is the verb form of pistis, and it could also be translated as to have faith. And next is pistos, the word that we translate as faithful. Now, it, it, it took me an embarrassing amount of time to realize that the English word faithful doesn't mean full of faith. It means trustworthy or worthy of putting faith in. Similar to how an appropriate response to something which is wonderful is to wonder at it, an appropriate response to someone who is faithful is to put your faith in them. I had disconnected the words faith and faithful in my mind uh, because I had seen faithful as a description of someone who's constant or always follows through. But I didn't see that it, it more explicitly implies that you should have faith in someone who is faithful. Okay. So, now that we understand there's a relationship between those words, let's get down to what the passage says that faith is. Verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
we can see that faith deals with things that are hoped for, but are not yet manifested or which aren't owned yet. But how can we be sure of something that we cannot see? In the movie, The Princess Bride, Wesley and Inigo are in the middle of a sword fight, and Inigo says, I admit it, you are better than I am. And Wesley responds, then why are you smiling? I know something that you do not know. I am not left-handed. And he moves his sword to his other hand, and the fight immediately changes. Despite how the duel had been going up to that point, Inigo was confident because he knew something which was not yet apparent. Now, albeit his faith uh, in his skill was misguided because Wesley had also been fighting with the opposite hand and regained the advantage once he switched over as well, but the point stands that his confidence came from his knowledge of something that was not yet visible. Again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The meaning of the word assurance or hypostasis in Greek is uh, it's debated. And there are four primary in- interpretations. Uh, sadly, we do not have time to go into all those. But the interpretation of hypostasis or assurance, which I landed on, was that of confidence or assurance. I personally didn't want this to be the most suitable definition. I didn't want faith to just mean confidence here. But At least in this passage, I think it best describes what the author of Hebrews is actually going for. Let's look back at the end of chapter 10. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, shrinking back is juxtaposed with having faith. Like I said, we've been building up this idea throughout the rest of the book. Hold fast to our confidence. Hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to our hope. No matter, though, what interpretation you take for what assurance or hypostasis means or what faith is, there are a few things that I have to go into that Faith is not. Although faith is confidence or assurance of our hope, saving faith is not blind. It is not a leap in the dark. It is based on the promises of God. Remember that connection between faith and faithful. God is faithful, which means that he has shown us over and over that he is worth putting our faith in. We trust in the one who has proven that he is trustworthy, revealing himself in his word. Faith isn't a leap in the dark. Faith illuminates the dark. Faith is the ability to see the light, to know to understand. Take a look at verse 3 with me. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith isn't blind. 
It's how we see. Faith is a kind of seeing. It's a sense or a faculty. It's how we understand the spiritual things of God. Faith is also not opposed to reason and logic. There is a a meditation tool in Buddhism, uh, Zen Buddhism, called a koan, which is a nonsensical or paradoxical story or question. Think of the sound of one hand clapping would be a well-known example. The point that they have of contemplating, contemplating these koans is not to figure out how one hand could clap, though I did attempt to figure that out with some mild success. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the, the purpose for which these Zen Buddhist masters use these is to get their students to rid their mind of reasoning so that they can find enlightenment. They would say, if you try hard enough to believe in a contradiction, you can find truth. But saving faith, as taught in the Bible, does not believe in contradictions. Yep, yes, there are paradoxes in our theology, which perhaps no one but God knows. How can God be sovereign and man have free will? How can Jesus be, full, be both fully God and fully man? How can a good God allow evil to exist? But these are paradoxes, not contradictions. Physical impossibility is distinct from logical impossibility. When the Bible says it is impossible for God to tell a lie, it's not referring to God's inability to audibly communicate a falsehood. (laughs) It's referring to the fact that if God told a lie, he would no longer be God. And a God who is no longer God was never God in the first place. So, faith is not opposed to reason. Instead, it works alongside it. Let's look at the second part of verse 1. Faith is the conviction of things not not seen. And the word translated as conviction here Elenchas only shows up one other place in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And in 2 Timothy, it refers to exposing or convicting. When you expose someone, you do so by offering proof or evidence. So then, faith is the exposure or the proof or the evidence of things not seen. Huh. Evidence. Evidence is what we use in reasoning, isn't it? If you look farther down in Hebrews 11, we're actually given an example of how faith and reasoning work together. Look at uh, 11, starting in 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered or reasoned that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He considered logizomai. It's related to our English word logic. He used critical thinking to determine that it was possible for God to fulfill his promise despite not knowing how God would do it. And so, in faith... He did as God commanded him. Reasoning led him to believe God will find a way. And then by faith, he took action, which demonstrated that belief. When his faith was tested, he endured. In 2020, during the pandemic, I, uh, I worked from home pretty much every day. Uh, I had less interaction with people, and the aloneness gave way to despair. I struggled a lot with doubts, and I began to question the meaning of life. Simply put, my soul was weary. At that time, I believed faith was just belief. I believe that reason on its own could conclude in the type of faith that is expressed here in Hebrews. Now, I believe that God gives us that ability to come to those beliefs because of the enlightenment that he gives us. But I didn't think that faith could go beyond what reason provides. In God's providence, he taught me about the nature of faith through an unexpected source. I was watching a video from Veritasium, it's a well-known science education channel, which talked about a pivotal, pivotal event in the history of mathematics which changed our entire understanding of what the limits of math and logic are. Hang with me here. <laughs> in the late 1800s, a 24-year-old logician, logician named Kurt Gödel discovered a way to prove, using logic, that no logical system can prove its own consistency. Now, what does that mean? The video describes the conclusion of this discovery. There is a hole at the bottom of math. A hole that means we will never know everything with certainty. There will always be true statements that cannot be proven. This devastated me. It's possible for certain truths to be unprovable, meaning that there is no way to arrive at that truth through reasoning alone. How can we know the truth then if we can't prove it? My faith was shaken, but through it, I learned the true nature of faith. 
faith is not arrived at through pure reason. Nor is it opposed to reason, but it does go beyond what reason alone can provide. By faith, we understand what could not be understood otherwise. Logic can lead you to the narrow gate, but faith allows you to enter it. Correcting how I understood faith changed how I lived. I gained confidence in the promises of God. My soul grew lighter, and I was able to, through the understanding and certainty that true faith provided, endure those difficult days. Okay, we're maybe halfway through the sermon, so let's move on to verse 2. <laughs> By faith, the people of old received their commendation. Okay, what does that mean? In the English Standard Version, the Greek word martyrio is translated as received their commendation. Some other versions translate it as had borne witness to them, obtained a good report, uh, or were approved. In the Lexham English Bible, Hebrews is the only place in Scripture where this word is actually translated as approved, but most of the time it's translated as testify or bear witness. And it usually implies speaking well of someone or something. It's the same word that we see in verse 5. Now, before he was taken, he was commended or approved as having pleased God. It has the same root as martis, from which we get our word martyr. It shows up again in Hebrews 12.1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So, through faith, these people of old have someone testifying, presumably God, presumably to God, excuse me, in their favor. Someone is commending them to God because of their faith. And in verse 4, we can see who that is. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. God was the one commending him, approving him, accepting his sacrifice. Now, it's often suggested that the difference between Abel's heart and Cain's heart is what resulted in God accepting Abel's sacrifice and rejecting Cain's. And in some sense, yes, that is true. But the sacrifice matters. In fact, his sacrifice is what gave him approval with God. Remember what we learned in chapter 9, in verse 22. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Abel understood that his sin caused his life to be forfeit. And so he sacrificed a lamb, a life. 
His sacrifice speaks of the need for a spotless substitute to die in our place. Cain sacrificed an offering of the fruit of the ground. But isn't that commendable, though? He worked hard to plant and cultivate and harvest. It wasn't just the faith. It wasn't just that faith made Abel's offering better. It was that Abel, in faith, offered the sacrifice that God had established as the means of salvation. Whereas Cain tried to obtain forgiveness by offering the fruit of his own labor. The only way that we are approved before God is through enduring faith, trusting and believing that the only acceptable sacrifice to provide forgiveness of sins and salvation from evil is the lifeblood of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at another example of finding favor with God through faith. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as pleasing God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you look back to Enoch's story in Genesis, the original Hebrew text actually says he walked with God, whereas here in Hebrews it says he pleased God. The author of Hebrews is presumably quoting the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, those translators tried to avoid using anthropomorphisms, like God walking. But walking with God and pleasing God convey the same thing. A life full of enduring faith. Richard D. Phillips, in his commentary of Hebrews, puts it this way. This is the Christian life. It is not a bare knowledge of facts or a grim recitation of doctrines. To be a Christian is to walk with God, to know him, to live in the light of his presence. And verse 6 continues the thought by implying that drawing near to God is the equivalent of pleasing him. I want you to note here that verse 6 explains verse 5. It's not, as I once believed, that verses 1 to 2 are theology, and then we have verses 3 to 5, which are some stories and examples, and then we're back to theology in verse 6. No, no, no. We must be careful to not take these verses out of context. Because verse 6 answers the question, how do we know that Enoch had faith? Genesis doesn't explicitly say that. But we can deduce that since Enoch pleased God, we know he had faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And he pleased God. So, how can we be like Enoch? 
How do we walk with God? How do we please God and draw near to him? Go back to verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So first, you must believe in God's existence. It is not enough to just say, I believe, or it is to just believe. What you believe is key. I believe in God, believes, you mean in his, you believe in his existence, but it says nothing about what you believe about his character. A literal translation of the Greek would read something like this. It is necessary for anyone who comes to God to believe that he is. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like I am that I am. God does not change. Perpetually, God is. The constancy of his character is what we root our faith in. Since his faithfulness is what allows us to have faith that he will fulfill his promises. So we see the object of one's faith has to be true for faith to be effective. If Sean said to me, I have faith that you will become a professional baseball star, I'm not sure that that's a very good thing to have faith in, not only because I didn't get a single hit my last year of Little League, uh, but primarily because I have no particular interest in becoming a professional baseball star. His faith is going to be disappointed because it doesn't appear that he actually knows me then. It would seem that he would have made an image of me that isn't accurate, and in so doing, made his faith in that image ineffective. Those who claim a faith in God, but instead worship their image of him, are those to whom God will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Faith requires believing in and knowing the true God, the I am. Unbelief doubts the goodness of God and pushes us away from him but a persevering belief that God is faithful to his promise is essential for you and I to draw near to him. So, first, you must believe in the existence of the God of Moses, the I Am, knowing his character. Then you must believe that he is relevant. All throughout history, we can see examples of people claiming to believe in God, even the God of Moses, and yet they do not believe that he rewards those who seek him, that his existence is relevant to their lives. Instead, they believe that friendship rewards those who seek it. Health rewards those who seek it. Amusement rewards those who seek it. A comfortable house and career success rewards 
those who seek it. And in many ways, those things do provide some reward to those who pursue them. There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting friends, health, amusement, a comfortable house, or career success. But do you believe God is worth seeking? Do you believe it is worth it for God's teachings to have an impact on how you live? Do you believe that Jesus is better? If you truly believe there is reward in seeking God, your faith will be made evident by your obedience to God. Now, both of these examples that we've seen here, Abel and Esau, happened before God made a covenant with Abraham. They lived long before the giving of the law to Moses. And what this shows us is that the way that we please God hasn't changed. The method of salvation, the way we obtain life, has been the same from the first generation of humans to Abraham and the law, to the prophets, all the way through the apostles and to us today. It is and always has been faith. The law didn't change how we were saved. Keeping the law is not a substitute for faith. Turn, me, turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. I want us to start in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. There's that word, pisteuo, meaning to have faith. So, through faith, not the law, Abel was accepted by God. Enoch pleased God. And Abraham was seen as righteous by God. God is only pleased with righteousness. And the only way for us to be considered righteous is through faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's look back at Hebrews 10, uh, verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. My righteous one shall live by faith is quoting Habakkuk, The Hebrew word emun, translated as faith or faithfulness there, literally means firmness. It's where we get our word amen. It implies security or stability. And it points us back to what the book of Hebrews has been getting at this whole time. Faith and confidence are two sides of the same coin. Shrinking back results in God not being pleased. Faith is the opposite 
of shrinking back. And faith is what pleases God. And we learn elsewhere that sin is what displeases God. And so we must come to the conclusion that the source of sin is lack of faith. All sin can be traced to one thing, unbelief. Romans 14.23 makes this explicitly clear. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's a hard teaching. I believe that sometimes we can tend to think of our behavior, our actions, our thoughts, our motives, in three categories. That which pleases God, that which angers God, and that which God is indifferent to. But I think that's not what Hebrews and Romans are getting at here. So, sure, God may be indifferent when it comes to what football team you may root for, but he sure isn't indifferent to whether your rooting is done in faith. If you root for the Vikings, I'm sorry, but if you do it in faith, God is pleased. If you root for the Vikings and you don't do it in faith, God is not pleased. Whether or not the faith is there is the defining feature of whether or not God is pleased. There is no in-between. So everything we do, we think, or say, or believe is put into two categories. In faith, not in faith. Not sin, sin. Holding fast to God's promises doubting God's promises, pleasing to God and not pleasing to God. And even good intentions cannot make that which displeases God to please him. Let's take a look at Hebrews 9, 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Unintentional sins? They didn't mean to commit those sins. But sin is not merely about our intentions. Sin is about lack of faith. There is no, but I tried to live a good life. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that even someone doing good works in his name is considered to be a worker of lawlessness if they do not have faith. So, if someone is apostate or appears to not be a member of the family of God, and they're doing something which is described as a sin in Scripture, what should our response be? Should we tell them that they shouldn't sin in that one area? Maybe. Homosexuality is a sin. Okay. But how will that message benefit them if they do not already have faith? Homosexuality is a sin, yes. But their entire life is one of sin. Because they have no faith. 
They cannot possibly please God by changing their behavior without faith. The gospel is not about behavior modification. The gospel is about a heart transplant. The faith comes first, and only then do the actions change. And if one has true saving faith, the actions will change. Will change. Our works provide evidence of faith. Let's take a look at Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We can see here that Noah is a perfect example of being confident of what we do not see. God told him, here's what's going to happen. And he trusted God's word even though nothing had happened yet to provide additional evidence for him. And he demonstrated his faith with action. A large portion of the book of James is dedicated to this connection between faith and works. Uh, I I won't read the entire book of James to you, uh, but in James 2 it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Saving faith is not just belief. True faith is always accompanied by action and it results in obedience. Unbelief results in disobedience. We are told in Genesis 6 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Was it his works apart from faith which made God to be pleased with him? No. Look at the previous verse there. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Richard D. Phillips explains here that the order is important. It isn't that Noah was blameless and thereby found grace with God, but that his blamelessness itself was the result of God's favor. Again, God is pleased by righteousness, which he gives to us through faith. And faith results in obedience. God gives us the ability to obey him. And through faith, we obey with earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And to close, though we don't have time to do a deep dive into the verses uh, 8 through 12. I did want to point out a nugget which again sums up what faith does. Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age since she considered him faithful 
who had promised. Sarah believed that, as we read at the end of chapter 10, he who promised is faithful. She believed in the character and the steadfastness of God. She responded in faith and looked forward to the reward that God provides those who seek him. We depend on his faithfulness to provide us with faith. And by faith, we look forward in hope and trust, in full assurance of receiving God's promises. Last passage I'm going to have you turn to, 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Note the change here, though. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Despite our unfaithfulness, it would be impossible for God to be unfaithful. And so, as we sang earlier, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, and so he must hold me fast. The start of chapter 12 shows us how to sustain our faith and hold fast. We look to Jesus, our example, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so I encourage you, walk with God. Live by faith. Look to Jesus and hold fast to your confidence. And you will inherit the promise because he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.